Good morning. Let us stand together and hear from God's word as we begin our time of worship. Psalm 5 says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Well, some of us come in this morning full of joy, ready to burst into song. And some of us come in this morning full of other things, full of doubt, full of sadness. And we need to sing as well. Some of us sing with joy, some of us sing for joy. So let your voice this morning, if you find yourself without joy, let your voice lead you, lead your heart to joy, to drive the dark of doubt away as we sing together to the, the giver of immortal gladness. Joyful, 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 we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the Sing it with joy. All thy works with joy surround me. Earth and every flag thy rays. Stars and angels sing around me. Center of unbroken praise. Field and forest, hill and mountain, flowery meadow flashing sea. Sing it out. Mortals join the mighty chorus. Which 
which the morning stars beget. Father, love is reigning o'er us. Brother, love binds men to men. Ever singing, march we onward, victors in the midst of strife. That is our song this morning, that we are joyful. We have immortal gladness because of the love that God has shown for us in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 Please be seated. I was reflecting on those words this morning, and I was thinking, wow, what a beautiful way to think about the mission of the church, that we have been invited to join into a, a mighty chorus a song that has been sung since the foundations of the earth that we've been invited in to to sing God's praise to the ends of the earth and inviting other people to come in and join this joyful song with us. That's what we mean when we say that our church exists to spread God's glory broader and deeper, just a deeper joy in what God has done in Christ. And so we spread that glory here in Albuquerque, but also all around the world. That is our mission as Christians, and that is what we do as a church, is we participate in missions to the ends of the earth. And as uh, we always do every year, we are coming up on our missions emphasis week. So that is beginning this next Saturday. And so many great plans are coming together. This is going to be uh, a jam-packed week for us as a church and so many things that we can do. But this is a time for us to celebrate the work that God has allowed us to do to the ends of the earth and making disciples and also to continue continue to participate in that work. If you remember uh, this Missions Emphasis Week, we are especially uh, raising support so that we can fund a translation of a Paul David Tripp book, New Morning Mercies, into an Arabic dialect in a region where we are trying to reach Muslims in North Africa. And so that's a big focus for this Missions Emphasis Week, but we've got a lot of other things going on. First, let me say to you that one of our missionary families, the C family, has arrived here in Albuquerque, and they're in this room right now. That's right. Can you guys stand up? They're right here. Yes. Yes. So we celebrate you guys. We are so glad. I, got, I literally just met them. You guys have been in North Africa the whole time that I've been here, but I have heard so much about you, and we're so glad for you. And, and if you haven't gotten to meet them or if you haven't gotten to see them since they were last here, come say hi to them after church. But uh, you guys will be participating in a lot of the things that we have going on this week, and so you can have a chance to hear from them and about the work that we are doing uh, with the G family uh, along with the C family in North Africa. They will be speaking at our Saturday seminar, which is this coming Saturday, the 12th. So if you want to hear about about the work that they're doing there. You can come to that. Matt Ellison, who is another member and uh, works in missions, he'll be there as well, leading a lecture in why do we send missionaries to difficult places, places like North Africa. So if you haven't signed up for that Saturday seminar yet, please do that on our website, okay, or on the app. But uh, I would encourage you to come to that. It's gonna be a great time to learn about missions. And then maybe God would even use that to stir your heart to participate more or even go. Wouldn't that be neat? So come to that Saturday seminar, and then the following Sunday, 
we're going to have our missions barbecue. So I, I have been told that this is some of the best barbecue you will ever have. And we're going to be cooking it right here. Okay, so we're going to be cooking some barbecue. And then for $25, you can buy what uh, amounts to four servings for normal people or one serving for a very hungry person. <laughs> Okay, but this is a suggested donation of $25 that, again, will be going to our missions work. But we'll have barbecue here on Sunday that'll um, be a time for us to participate in missions. And we'll have tables set up all outside. And so you can grab some barbecue, sit down with your family, and you can fellowship either after the first or the second service. We'll have barbecue. So plan on that, bringing that $25 suggested donation on Sunday. And then also as part of raising money for this translation and our missions work, we're going to have a silent auction. So that silent auction will begin Saturday at the Saturday seminar. We'll have some things here in person. We'll have other things online that you can bid on, and that money will go towards our work there. That silent auction, again, begins on Saturday, and it ends right before our Lord's Supper service, which is Wednesday the 16th. Okay, so from Saturday to Wednesday, please make time to check out the, the items that are available for auction. So if you have other questions about Missions Emphasis this week, there are other things that I didn't get to talk about now because there's just so much, but you can go to our website, dscabq.com slash M-E-W, Missions Emphasis Week. You can also just email our missions minister, Josiah. His email is josiah at dscabq.com. His personal cell phone, no, I'm not going to do that, no. But lots of good stuff. If you have questions, you can find out more about that online. So let's continue rejoicing now in prayer. Oh Lord, we, re we rejoice in you and the work that you have done for us in Christ. We have joy, even when it doesn't always feel like it. And so God, I pray that you would use this time to increase our joy, help all of us in this room to uh, have more reasons to be glad in the giver of immortal gladness. Help us to meditate on Christ and his work for us. And Lord, I pray that you would, you would even use this joy to fuel our missions, that we would be a people that go rejoicing to the ends of the earth, that our joy would be palpable, and that other people would want to be invited into the song that we are singing, Lord, even as we are mere mortals, mere sinners. We come to you with great joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand now and confess together through song that we are weak, needy sinners, and let us sing for his mercy. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, love, Give us rest. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. 
go to Jesus, sing it out. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are ten thousand charms. I will rise, sing it again. your voice. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. was lost when you came for me held in chains by the enemy but you broke them in victory now i'm free i am free you're my joy and you are my hope i am saved by your grace alone i will sing of your love for has paid for my every sin from now through eternity i am free i am free oh you my god have saved my soul i am yours forevermore i won't be moved of this i'm sure you my god and you saved alive what once was dead is now alive you gave to me the breath of life you brought me up out from the grave i'm bursting out with songs of praise what once was dead is now alive you gave to me the breath of life brought me up out from the grave. I'm bursting out with songs of praise. I'm bursting out with songs of praise. You, my God, have saved my soul. I
and amen. What a glorious song. Good morning, church. Please pray with me. Holy Father, oh, we were dead, but we are now alive. Our souls burst with love and adoration for your inexpressible gift to us. You are pure holiness. You laid aside eternal glory to be joined with us. Enjoy, Lord Jesus, you endured the cross and the eternal weight of sin, and we are redeemed people. Father, I lift up the youth of Desert Springs. I thank you so much for this getaway this last week, the camp. I thank you for their safety. I thank you for their fun and fellowship. I even heard the zip lining was really awesome. But mostly, Lord, I thank you for the preaching of your gospel. Father, call them to yourself. Save their souls. I offer you their hearts, their minds, and their bodies. Help them to grow in holiness and in the goodness of salvation. May they shine in times of darkness and stand safely upon the foundation of the gospel of truth and not be shaken. May they look to you for wisdom and look beyond the follies of this world and to know what is true what is false, to know what is right and what is wrong, to know what is holy and what is sinful. Give them eyes to see your vision to bring gospel light to the lost. May they be like trees planted beside streams of living water that drink deeply and that they are able to grow strong and bear up under the challenges of this world. Father, by your grace, please challenge and convict those who may not be saved. They might even acknowledge you with their lips, but Lord, you know that their hearts are far from you. Lord, what a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Help them to see that their faith must be their faith and not borrowed from mom or dad. Help them to find their delight in you and you alone. Father, we lift up to you our youth minister, Caleb Batchelor, and his entire leadership team. I pray for endurance as they encourage and shepherd these young image bearers of you. May they continue to find great joy in the ministry of your word. Will you bless conversations? Will you strengthen relationships? And will you deepen the currency of trust? May you, the God of hope, fill Caleb with all joy and peace as he trusts in you so that he may overflow with hope himself by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as for parents, I thank you for the love and support that they give their teenagers. Lord, these are such formative years, and the significance can weigh heavily on their hearts. Lord, remind us to be joyful in hope, patient in difficulty. Help parents to continue in steadfast prayer, even when it seems that life is getting more and more complicated, not less. But as you are patient with us, Father, help parents to be patient with their families. Let them be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. 
Give them a powerful sense of the work that you are doing in and through them and to hold out the abundant word of life to their teenagers who otherwise are surrounded by the deceitfulness of this world. Father, you are sovereign and you are good in all your ways. And we know that for all who love you, all who love you, that you do all these things for our good and your glory. And we know that you who began a good work will surely complete it. I thank you, Holy Father, for this wonderful promise that we have that we can cling to. We pray this in the glorious and lovely name of Jesus. Amen. Let us stand to respond and rejoice in the glorious truth of the gospel that saves young and old to the praise of his glorious grace. Man of sorrows, Lamb of God, by his own betrayed. The sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus' way.
picture this. See the stone is rolled away. Behold the empty tomb. Yes, he is risen. to be assembled as a church, to be with one another, and to sing your praises, to recount to each other and to ourselves, and to celebrate before you the glorious salvation that is ours in Jesus. We're remindful, Lord, we're, we're mindful of the day when we will one day be all together, a throng in a new heaven, a new earth, before the throne worshiping our Savior in his presence. We thank you for that hope and thank you for the foretaste of it that we have even in a moment like this. In that day, in a new heaven and a new earth, Lord, we will no longer need this Bible, these printed pages, but we will have our Savior and we will see him face to face. But until then, Lord, you've given us your word and we're thankful for it. So we pray you would help us, Lord, to see the gospel afresh today, to see our need for a Savior, to see his glorious saving ways and the powerful implications of it. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and be glorified, Lord Jesus, to build your church in our midst here today. Amen. You could be seated. Well, if you would, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 5, as we work our way through this letter from Paul to the Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty or Christian freedom. It's the charter of Christian liberty or freedom. We've been calling this sermon series, Free in Christ. And that has an intentional double meaning. First, the gospel is free in Christ. It costs you nothing because Christ has paid it all. And so we receive grace as a gift. It is free. In fact, if you try to earn God's grace with the law, with works, with your doing, your effort, you forfeit grace. The gospel is free in Christ. And that's what Paul covers and argues really in the first four chapters of Galatians. The gospel is free. But the second way in which we're speaking of 
this freedom that we have in Christ is that the gospel produces freedom in Christ. It frees. It's freeing, we could say. We have, as Christians, been set free. We are free in Christ. Free from what? Freedom of what kind? What does this freedom in Christ look like and how is it lived out? Well, that's what Paul unpacks in chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians. Of course, like a dog who won't let go of a bone, Paul occasionally in these last two chapters continues to clarify what his first point of emphasis has been throughout the first four chapters. That the gospel is free and that it can't be bought or earned. He keeps circling back to that as he talks about the implications of that free gospel. As he unpacks the freedom that comes as a result of this gospel which is free. But it's starting with a shift in chapter 5 where he's more fully emphasizing the implications and the outworkings and the application of the free gospel in Christ. The free gospel, Paul insists, it changes a person from the inside out. It means the spirit is now within them. It means they are a new creation, as he'll say in chapter 6. Salvation breeds a kind of freedom that is life-changing and remarkable and otherworldly. The gospel is free and freeing. So look down in your Bibles, if you would, or up on the screens, if you'd rather look there. Galatians 5, starting in verse 7. Paul says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Well, I see a few turns in what Paul says here. Let me suggest four C words, four C words that will help us identify the turns in Paul's thought. And just FYI, the first and fourth of those That'll take the longest, the majority of our time, and then the second and third will be more brief. The first C is concern. The concern restated, we could say, verses 7 to 9. The concern that Paul has, firmly established by now, if you've been reading in Galatians or here on Sunday mornings for this series, 
His concern is about whether the Galatians would turn to another gospel. Notice that in our verses, 7 to 9, here Paul speaks of the concern in a shorthand way. In verse 7, it's who hindered you from obeying the truth? Or verse 8, this persuasion that you're getting from these false teachers is not from God. And then he uses a metaphor in verse 9, a little leaven. That's all referring to the false teaching. It's all related to his concern. Here, he's not explicit about what it is that he's concerned about. He's already established that. He's already written about it. Let's just remind ourselves of how he's put it so far. Look back to Galatians 1, and we'll just highlight a few verses to keep this in mind, especially as we move into this section on exhortation and application. We don't want to forget what Paul's concern has been and still remains. Verse 6 of chapter 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Look to chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. You see, verse 11. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now look at chapter 4, verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And then last week, Chase led us in the first six verses of chapter 5. Let me just read the first three of those verses where Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. That's Paul's concern. Or as he puts it in verse 7... You were running well. The Christian life is likened to a race. And this is one of Paul's favorite metaphors for the Christian life. He has several metaphors for the Christian life. He says it's like farming and we're like farmers. He says it's uh, like a battle and we are soldiers. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, it's like a boxing match, and so you got to train for the boxing match. But, but a race in which we run, that's probably Paul's favorite. It's how he summed up his life when he found himself at the end of his life. He wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. 
That's also how he spoke of the affirmation that he received from the other apostles when he came to Jerusalem and where they confirmed that, yes, Paul was preaching the same gospel that they heard from Jesus. Galatians 2.2, there Paul checked in with the apostles in Jerusalem, quote, to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Christians, let's not forget that the Christian life is likened to a race. And not a sprint, but more like a marathon. Because it's supposed to last as long as the Lord gives us breath on this earth. It's a race. It's not easy then. There's progress to be made. There's plotting It's one foot after another, step after step. We just keep stepping, just keep going. There are obstacles to watch out for in this race. This race will have some ups and downs, some highs and lows. No one runs the race of the Christian life perfectly. But ideally, we'd like to minimize the lows the, the, the low light reel. Ideally, we'd like to run our race well. Ideally, we'd like to say with Paul at the end of our lives, I fought the good fight, I ran the race, I've kept the faith. Paul had genuine concern for these Galatians because he says they were running well. They had a good start. He's implying you were clear on the gospel. You were at one time clinging to the gospel. But now I don't know. It remains to be seen. You're making me wonder whether you really had true grace from the beginning. You are now at least entertaining the possibility that your salvation is not all of grace. That it's not Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You're messing with the alone part in adding and. So take note of that, Christian, that no small part of running well in the Christian life is simply clinging to the same gospel you got at the beginning. You might think that running a race well in the Christian life would imply obedience, holiness, godliness, keeping yourself from scandalous sin. And that's all partly true. That is. And and in another message, that might be our focus. But it's not in this passage, is it? From our passage, and I would say most fundamentally, the race is run well as we keep clinging to the true gospel. There is no race to keep running if we're on a different track. So we don't monkey around with the gospel. We don't get bored with this gospel and get clever with new inventions. We don't don't give up on repenting. All of life is to be one of repentance. 
That was Martin Luther's first of his 95 theses. We have to keep seeing our need for a Savior and keep not trusting in our own efforts. We can't turn from the simplicity and purity of the gospel in Christ. We are still and always in this life like the tax collector in Luke 19 who beat on his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We are still like him and hopefully not like the Pharisee who prayed his smug prayer of thankfulness. Thank God I'm not like that. That's no small part of running well. The second half of verse 7, Paul says, Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And here, obeying is not obeying commands. It's not about behavior. Of course, that's elsewhere in the New Testament. But here, Paul is still speaking about the gospel. He's speaking of their conversion. They obeyed the truth. There are times in the Bible where the invitation, the call to believe and repent is a call. It's a command. So Paul can speak of those in 2 Thessalonians 1 who do not obey the gospel of the Lord. They didn't obey it. They didn't come. They wouldn't believe. They didn't repent. Paul can speak of, in Romans 16, the obedience of faith. You see, sometimes obedience, obey, is used in connection with the gospel call to believe and repent and not trust any of your own righteousness. The false teachers in Galatia were seeking to hinder the Galatians' obedience to the truth, ironically, by calling them to obey more than the gospel call. They were in danger of being hindered. Verse 8, Paul says, this persuasion from them is not from him who calls you. It's not of the Lord. It's not from the one who calls you. He's taking the Galatians back to the beginning of their conversion and reminding them the nature of it. He called you. He initiated this is referring to God's effective call, not the gospel invitation call. Reminding them that God's grace is all of grace from beginning to end. He began it. He sought you out. He called you to himself. And this message, Paul is saying to the Galatians, this message that you're tinkering with, this false gospel that you're entertaining of mingling your own good works with his grace, that is not a piece with his saving work. This is not how he's done it. Just look back to the beginning. It's not from him who calls you. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is language from the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was first celebrated the Passover night in Exodus 12. And it was to be a yearly routine after that, a week where no Israelite house had any yeast in it, no leaven. 
And it symbolized their need for getting rid of sin. It reminded them just how important and how hard it is to root out sin. Not just one week a year, but really they need that all year long. So leaven was this good word picture for sin even back then because leaven spreads. If you've ever made homemade bread, you know a little leaven leavens the whole batch. So Paul takes that well-known imagery of the Old Testament and he reapplies it here to gospel purity. Not rooting out sin, but keeping the gospel pure. So he's reminding them that a false gospel, it spreads. It spreads. It will often spread and affect others. Just like the true gospel can spread like wildfire in a community when God decides to blow on it. So a heresy can spread through a local church like wildfire when a few in the church begin to espouse it and talk of it and spread it. So this means that a church can't be indifferent to just, to just a few in the church with, a, with heresy, with another gospel. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul already told them in Galatians 1.8 what they should do about this. Even if we, we apostles, even if we or angels come to you preaching another gospel, let the one who comes, this messenger with another gospel, let him be accursed, damned, outside the faith. Be willing to cast him out of the fellowship and consider him outside the faith. Now, action shouldn't be so severe over smaller doctrinal error and smaller doctrinal differences. That is why we spend no small part of time in our membership class talking about theological triage. Theological triage. Remember that? There are first order, second order, and third order issues in theology. First order issues are those that are essential to the gospel, and we must have those fully in agreement. Second order issues are those which distinguish churches from other churches and denominations from other church uh, denominations. It's what we need to have in common in order to do church life together. But then there are third order issues. Like whether you think tongues are for today or, or, or whether Jesus is spiritually present in the Lord's Supper or it's just a memorial or, or how things turn out in the end, end times, different views on that. We don't need to break fellowship over that. Those are different theological views. We need theological triage to know what is a matter of anathema, accursed, and what is a matter of deference for unity? But when it's a matter of the gospel, action must be decisive. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The second C, more quickly, confidence asserted. Confidence asserted. Verse 10, 
Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Now that might be surprising if you were with us last week and you saw those verses like verse 4. There, Paul seemed pretty skeptical about the genuineness of the Galatians' faith. He said, you have severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now that sounds pretty sure and certain. But Paul has not painted himself in a corner in verse 4. If you read it carefully, it specifies. It is you who would be justified by the law who would be severed from Christ. So if the shoe fits, that's you. It's a stark and stern warning to any who would entertain a gospel of a gospel of being justified by the law. But only a handful of verses later, in verse 10, Paul can say, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than the true view, the gospel view, the one you came to when I was there and you heard it from me. His confidence is not in the Galatians themselves, but in the Lord. See that? He specifies this too. That means that all those in the Lord will in fact cling to the true gospel until their dying day. And if you are in the Lord, of course you have already embraced that true and only gospel. You will keep it so... Keep it. Keep at it. All those who are in the Lord will keep at it. This is just what Paul said in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. You see how Paul is combating the temptation to turn to another gospel from every angle possible with every tool in his tool belt he's using severe warning and he's using warm encouragement and he even encourages them with the assurance of divine judgment coming on those who have been troubling them the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is here he must be speaking of the ringleader of these false teachers. And Paul assures the Galatians that the ringleader and his minions all will face God's judgment in due time, in God's timing. The third C is circumcision renounced. Circumcision renounced, he's back to circumcision. Verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. He's asking, what's the subject matter of my preaching? Is it circumcision or the cross? Again, remember the Galatian problem, the concern. The Galatians had been told by these false teachers that as Gentiles... They could get in on God's salvation through Jesus and his cross, but only if they first were circumcised. Not as a matter of hygiene or anything medical, but as a, a sign of the old covenant that God made with Abraham in the Old Testament. 
And so circumcision, at least in the book of Galatians, represents a system of obedience and works and doing in outward conformity in order to earn God's favor. And again, that is in contrast to the true gospel, which is grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. What's been Paul's message? Circumcision or the cross? The cross, of course, but at no small cost. Paul's saying here, if I were to make it easy on myself, I wouldn't preach the cross. That brings persecution. I would have kept preaching circumcision and obedience to the law in works righteousness. That is the more culturally acceptable and palatable message, not only among the unbelieving Jews in the first century, but even among the world, not just in the first century, but also today. Just think about it. Which of these two messages will more likely win friends and influence people. Message one says, there is nothing you can do to be saved. There is nothing you bring to the table to get into heaven, to be made right with God. You are doomed and helpless and hopeless, except for this and this alone, that God sent his son to be perfect righteousness for you and to bear your sins upon the brutal death of a cross. And you have no hope apart from this. That is your only hope. You are so desperate and hopeless that you must beg him for his mercy on account of the cross. Or message two. If you do these three simple steps, you can be made right with God. Sure, you're going to need his help. Yes, you need grace to cover up your mistakes. But you got this. You're almost there. Yes, the first step, circumcision, is a pretty big commitment. But once it's done, it's done. You did it. And you can cross that off the list. Then just follow some food laws. Maybe observe the Sabbath. And these are all observable, concrete, physical things that you can do. And at the end of the day, you can know whether you've done them or not, just like Saturday's chores. Which of those messages is more palatable and socially acceptable even today. Of course, it's message two and not message one. Message one there, the cross is utterly offensive until, by God's grace, it becomes salvation. 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. 
And to the Greeks, it's foolishness. And to the Jews, that's a stumbling block. But to those who are being saved, Christ is the power of God. That's salvation. And that's worth suffering for, like Paul was willing to suffer. It's worth losing friends over, if necessary, if they should so choose. And that's why the alternative to that message is so wrong, so deadly, so reprehensible, so damnable. And that's why Paul is so concerned. That's why he is even so worked up about this, like he is in verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Yes, that is saying what you think it might be saying, but we're hoping it was not saying. He is saying that those who think circumcision is so necessary and so important, if the removal of the foreskin is good and important, then just go all the way and cut the whole thing off. Don't blame me for being crude. Paul said that. And of course, it is hyperbole. He's not literally telling them to do that. He's not wishing they would do that as if they even would. It's sarcasm. And it is, yes, rather crude. It is certainly graphic. But not carelessly so. Not thoughtlessly so. Paul isn't flying off the handle. Really what he's doing in verse 12 is giving a vivid illustration of the theological point that he's made a couple times already. Like in chapter 3, verse 12. With the law, the one who does them must live by them. It's an all-in system. If you determine to keep laws to earn God's favor, you must keep them all and perfectly. Or chapter 5, verse 3. Every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. That's all Paul's saying. Now with some biting sarcasm and vivid imagery, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. You better go all the way. Circumcision is again renounced in most forceful terms in order to protect the priority and purity of the cross. The fourth C, their calling explained. And here's where Paul gets into the nitty-gritty, the implications, the application, the exhortation. But, but not, not before he just states this, this indicative, you could call it, right? Indicative. Imperatives. Imperatives tell us what to do. Indicatives tell us what we already are. So verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. As he already said back in verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to a yoke of slavery. True freedom is what we need. That's what we want, and it's only found in Christ, according to the Bible. We sang it already, quoting Jesus himself, who said, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
True freedom is only found in Christ, and true freedom is fully found in Christ for all who believe. We may not feel like it. We may not live like it. We may not experience it in every dimension of life. Paul isn't ignorant of the fact that there are some people, even Christians, who are in literal physical slavery. But true freedom is fully found in Christ for all who believe. And apart from Christ, regardless of life circumstances, regardless of wealth, regardless of privilege, regardless of honor, regardless of what others think, apart from Christ, there is no freedom, only slavery. Remember how Paul contrasted these two different systems of salvation back in chapter 4 using the Old Testament story of Hagar and Sarah. He said those women represent these two systems. And Paul went to great lengths to argue one is freedom, the other is slavery. Again, because it's an all-in system, it enslaves. The law enslaves. Remember how in Galatians 3, especially verse 8, Paul could say that the Galatians, as pagan Gentiles, they were, before Christ, enslaved to false gods. Verse 9, they were enslaved to the weak and worthless elementary principles. They were enslaved to sin. Remember that there really are two different kinds or two versions of spiritual slavery. One doesn't look like slavery, and to some doesn't feel like slavery at first. There's the slavery of license and the slavery of legalism. License, it's looseness. It's liberty, too much of it. Like James Bond is a license to kill, those who have license as their life banner, they, they, they're free to do whatever they want. So they think that pursuit is enslavement. And if you don't feel that yet, if you don't think that doing whatever you want, if it feels good, do it. If you don't think that enslaves, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament might be a good next step for you. You, you might need to see from someone who, who really gave his whole life with all the resources available to a king to pleasures in this world, and he found not only empty, but enslaving. But there's also that slavery that's more obvious, the slavery of legalism. You buy in to this obey and earn God's favor, and you are on the treadmill and breathless all the time, feeling like you're about to trip up every second. But Christians have been freed from that, for freedom, Christ has set us free. You were called to freedom, brothers. Freedom from what? 
freedom from the law. That's been his point, right? Freedom from striving, from trying, from earning. Freedom from threat. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from the uncertainty of, of what the final verdict will be. Freedom from fear. Don't you want that kind of freedom if you don't have it? Don't, don't you want that? That's what is offered to you in Christ. Or in a word here in our passage, it's just a word, cross. The cross. You see, Paul can just refer to the cross because it is the place where redemption was paid. The sin and guilt was taken care of for all who believe. Jesus died in our place to take our guilt, and he offers that to whoever would simply call on him for it, believe that he'll give it, that he'll, he'll take your sins away and declare you righteous and make you free. I pray you'd believe that today. Paul goes on in verse 13 in the second half, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He doesn't mean the flesh, the physical body. He means the sinful nature. Don't take your freedom and use it for sin. Christian, have you ever found yourself in a moment of temptation, quietly deliberating in your mind whether to sin or not? Should I? And have you ever said... Yeah, 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 it's fine because I'm forgiven. Jesus died for that sin too. I, I got grace. It's all good. I know I can't keep doing that. That's weird. That's bad. But just this time, it's covered in grace. Take and eat. Well, that's what Paul's talking about here. Romans 6.1, what are we, to continue in sin that grace may abound? No, may it never be. In Galatians 5.13, they're speaking directly to that moment of temptation when we say, yeah, I can do it because it's forgiven. I got grace. You've been called to freedom, Christian. Yes, you have freedom, unthinkable freedom, not freedom to do whatever you want. Freedom to obey. The gospel is free in Christ, and it is freeing, and it frees us unto new life. Have you heard me say before, have you heard me share Spurgeon's illustration? He, he makes this up. He says, imagine a blind man in the days of Jesus who cries out to Jesus for healing. And Spurgeon says, Jesus will heal him for free. The man has nothing to offer, and Jesus would take no money in the world. Jesus heals him freely. But once he's healed, he can no longer live like a blind man. Before healing, while blind, well, begging on the street corner was expected. Especially 
in first century days in the Roman world where there wasn't social help for the infirmed. But once he's healed, now with sight, Spurgeon says, he'll be expected to live as one with sight, not to beg, but to work and to serve. He's been freed from his blindness and freed unto good responsibilities. The Bible tells us, Christians, that we have been freed from guilt and wrath and trouble and fear, and we have been freed unto obedience and righteousness. And by the way, isn't that how God is free? God is free, right? God freed it. Do whatever he wants. Well, no, it's beyond his nature and character and desires for him to sin. Our God is free, and he exercises his freedom with righteousness and holiness. There's your definition of good freedom. It's God's kind of freedom. What will it be like in a new heaven and a new earth? Will we be free? Oh, yeah. Will we sin? No. We'll be freed from that. We'll be freed from that temptation. That's when we will finally, fully, forever be free. Until then, the promise of that freedom is ours even right now, and we can begin to live like it even now. We can be free to love others. Verse 13, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Remember verse 6, he said at the end there, he spoke of faith working through love. Faith getting worked out in love. Well, now he circles back to it and camps out on it. And it seems ironic, doesn't it, for him to say, we have freedom Freedom to serve one another. In fact, in the Greek, the word for serve is the word for slave. It's the verb for slave. We're so free, we're enslaved to each other. Paul is purposely ironic. Uh, This is all over the Bible. This is in the Exodus story where God kept saying to Pharaoh, Let my people go that they may serve me. And Paul says this is the fulfillment of the law, serving others with love. He says in verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Romans 13, you might want to write down this reference if you want to look it up and give it some attention later. Romans 13, verses 8 to 10, we have Paul saying essentially the same thing as he says in verse 14 here but he says it with greater length. And so it's a little more clear. And in Romans 13, he says, the one who loves fulfills the law. That sounds like our passage, right? But in Romans 13, he adds, you know the commandments, right? You know you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, taking three of the Ten Commandments. Well, he says after that, they are summed up in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is at the root of those. I mean, just take murder. 
To murder someone is the epitome of not loving them. Why not murder someone? Well, the best motive would be you love them. Don't steal from them. You see how love's at the heart of that? Love. So don't steal. Instead, share. Give. Covetousness. How does that relate to love? Well, when I'm coveting and wanting your stuff, I'm essentially wanting me to have it, not you. And it's all about me. I'm not thinking about others. I'm just thinking me, me. When is that coming to me? When do I get that? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which doesn't mean that we need to learn to love ourselves first and then we can love others. The counseling community loves to say that and I don't think it's right. I think this passage assumes that we already do love ourselves. We generally do serve ourselves and take care of ourselves. When we're hungry, we feed ourselves. When we're tired, we put ourselves to bed. When we, we have an itch, we scratch it. It's instinctual. We, we generally avoid pain. And exceptions like cutting oneself or suicide, they're the exceptions that prove the general rule. It's generally true that we care for ourselves. We're actually hyper-aware of our momentary needs and are pretty vigilant to meet those perceived needs. So, Jesus and Paul say, think of how that relates to others. As you think of meeting your own needs, caring for your own self, that's the way you should approach life in looking out for others' needs. Do that for those, of course, closest to you, your family. Do that for those closest to you in the church and in your community group, especially. But also with non-Christians. Do it with those who are different than you, like the Good Samaritan or the Jew that's in the ditch in Luke 10. Love those who are not easy to love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Through love, serve one another. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 13? Here we have the biblical definition of love. And we need a biblical definition of love because it's not merely sentiment, near is it merely actions. Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. All right, but what does that look like? I started making a list this morning, a list of suggestions, some of which are explicit in the Bible and some are indirectly related, but I, I, here's my list. Communicate appreciation to others instead of just assuming it. Communicate appreciation. Don't be stupid. 
stingy with your stuff. Prioritize hospitality. Listen well when you're talking to someone. Grow in empathy. Speak gently. Smile more. Sometimes don't chicken out, but say the hard needed thing. Speak the truth in love and get the balance right if you can. Don't presume to know the motives of others. You don't. Give the benefit of the doubt. Be positive, not pessimistic. Give others long leashes. Don't be easily offended. Don't gossip. Don't speak ill of others. Don't be smug. And don't be divisive on social media. Don't follow the world in its hyper partisan, line-drawing ways, drawing the lines in all the wrong places. Especially with those closest to you, think of the ways that they feel most loved. Do you know that book, The Five Love Languages? Oh. We all communicate love and feel loved with one or two of these five different love languages. So easy just to kind of miss one another because we communicate love on our terms, not with the love language of the one that's on the other end. Or simply doing all the things that you do more consciously in love and service for others. I thought about our musicians and Drew leading us in song today. I'm just so thankful for their hard work uh, to practice. Uh, not just this week, but leading up to it to have the skill on that instrument. We're loved in that. Oh, I, I could think of examples all day long. No doubt because I can think of countless ways that I don't do very well. So I'd encourage you to make your own list of ways that you can see love for your neighbor worked out in your own life. Ways you need to grow. Ways you, you're short in this command, this call. To love your neighbor as yourself. But I'd also encourage you with this. Yes, make your list. But curiously, the Bible doesn't give us hundreds of specifics. The Bible doesn't say, send more thank you notes. Get more flowers for your wife. Take your neighbor's trash can in and surprise him with it. No, the command in the Bible to love is instead, it's far-reaching and it's elastic and it's to be contextualized and situationalized. The Mosaic law of old has 613 specific commands. 
it actually said this is what a good citizen looks like and this is what love for your neighbor looks like and do these things. You get to the New Testament and Jesus and Paul emphasize this one command, at least as it relates to others. Love them, love them, love them. So yeah, make your list, as I did, of ideas and shortcomings and ways to grow. But more importantly, go through this week on the lookout, on your toes, praying for the Spirit's help and wisdom and ready to act in love in some fresh ways. Otherwise... Well, there's a warning at the end here, isn't there? If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul ends this section by saying, don't you see where non-love, where it leads? Haven't you felt the sting and the bite when you act animal-like with each other? Don't, don't, don't. By God's grace, don't. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this word from the Apostle Paul and more importantly from your Holy Spirit. Apply it to our hearts, Lord. Make us one in this church. Give us more of your love and give us wisdom in applying that love to others graciously because you have so graciously loved us and sacrificed for us to the nth degree, completely, fully, unto death. We thank you for this. We pray in your strong and saving name, Jesus. Amen. Let us stand and respond and let this be our prayer that we would be one for the sake of his name. Yeah.
end this service by welcoming and honoring a couple of people. And it fits with the theme of this Sunday of oneness and unity and love for others. Uh, some of you know that uh, last Sunday was Tim Bradley's last Sunday as pastor of Children in Family, uh, a position to which he has served faithfully for 17 years, 17 years in charge of kids. <laughs> there must be a crown in heaven for that. Well, the good news is, uh, even though his tenure as uh, pastor of children and their family comes to an end, uh, he's not going anywhere, of course. He's, he's been uh, moved to pastor of counseling and community groups, a transition that's been in the works uh, for some time, but now is official. Uh, before I tell you about the transition on the other side of that um, and welcome someone else. I just want to encourage you to thank Tim. Tim's not here today. He's on vacation um, and he's on sabbatical this summer. But as he finishes up 17 years of serving as pastor of children and their family, can I just encourage you to send him an email, especially if you've been blessed by his ministry here. Thank him for that. And we welcome Tate Madzima, uh, who is now our new minister of children and family. Here is Tate and Rachel. Are they here in the room somewhere? There you are. Tate and Rachel and their four kids. Welcome to you guys. <laughs> welcome them warmly. Let's make them one with us. Now stand with me if you would, and I'll dismiss us from Philippians 2. Paul says there, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, be of the same mind, of the same accord with one another. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you want more of that in your life and in this church, say amen. 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 You're dismissed.